Chapter 14 of The Midnight Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Doralene Kaplan. The Midnight Queen by May Agnes Fleming. Chapter 14 In the Dungeon. The interim between Miranda setting down her table lamp on the dungeon floor among the rats and the beetles, and the dwarfs finding her bleeding and senseless, was not more than twenty minutes. But a great deal may be done in twenty minutes judiciously expended, and most decidedly it was so in the present case. Both rats and beetles paused to contemplate the flickering lamp, and Miranda paused to contemplate them, and Sir Norman paused to contemplate her for an instant or so in silence her marvellous resemblance to leoline in all but one thing struck him more and more there was the same beautiful transparent colourless complexion the same light straight graceful figure the same small oval delicate features the same profuse waves of shining dark hair the same large dark brilliant eyes the same little rosy pretty mouth like one of Correggio's smiling angels. The one thing wanting was expression. In Leoline's face there was a kind of childlike simplicity, a look half shy, half fearless, half solemn in her wonderful eyes. But in this, her prototype, there was nothing shy or solemn. All was cold, hard, and glittering, and the brooding eyes were full of a dull, dusky fire. She looked as hard and cold and bitter as she was beautiful, and Sir Norman began to perplex himself inwardly as to what had brought her here. Surely not sympathy, for nothing wearing that face of stone could even know the meaning of such a word. While he looked at her, half wonderingly, half pityingly, half tenderly, a queer word that last, but the feeling was caused by her resemblance to Leoline, she had been moodily watching an old gray rat, the patriarch of his tribe, who was making toward her in short runs, stopping between each one to stare at her out of his unpleasantly bright eyes. Suddenly Miranda shut her teeth, clenched her hands, and with a sort of fierce suppressed ejaculation lifted her shining foot and planted it full on the rat's head. So sudden, so fierce, and so strong was the stamp that the rat was crushed flat and uttered a sharp and indignant squeal of expostulation while Sir Norman looked at her, thinking she had lost her wits. Still, she ground it down with a fiercer and stronger force every second, and with her eyes still fixed upon it and blazing with reddish-black flame, she said in a sort of fiery hiss, Look at it! the ugly, loathsome thing. Did you ever see anything look more like him? There must have been some mysterious rapport between them, for he understood at once to whom the solitary personal pronoun referred. Certainly, in the general expression of countenance, there is a rather marked resemblance, uh, especially in the region of the teeth and eyes. Except that the rat's eyes are a thousand times handsomer, she broke in, with a derisive laugh. But as to shape, resumed Sir Norman, eyeing the excited and astonished little animal, still shrilly squealing with the glance of a connoisseur, 
I confess, I do not see it. The red is straight and shapely, which his highness, with all reverence, be it said, is not, but rather the reverse, if you will not be offended at me for saying so. She broke into a short laugh that had a hard metallic ring, and then her face darkened, blackened, and she ground the foot that crushed the rack fiercer and with a sort of passionate vindictiveness as if she had the head of the dwarf under her heel. I hate him! I hate him! she said through her clenched teeth, and though her tone was scarcely above a whisper, it was so terrible in its fiery earnestness that Sir Norman thrilled with repulsion. Yes! I hate him with all my heart and soul, and I wish to heaven I had him here like this rat to trample to death under my feet. Not knowing very well what reply to make to this strong and heartfelt speech, which rather shocked his notions of female propriety, Sir Norman stood silent and looked reflectively after the rat, which, when she permitted it at last to go free, limped away with an ineffably sneaking and crestfallen expression on his hitherto animated features. She watched it, too, with a gloomy eye, and when it crawled into the darkness and was gone, she looked up with a face so dark and moody that it was almost sullen. Yes, I hate him, she repeated with a fierce moodiness that was quite dreadful. Yes, I hate him, and I would kill him like that rat if I could. He has been the curse of my whole life. He has made life cursed to me, and his heart's blood shall be shed for it some day yet, I swear. With all her beauty, there was something so horrible in the look she wore that Sir Norman involuntarily recoiled from her. Her sharp eyes noticed it, and both grew red and fiery as two devouring flames. Ah, you too shrink from me, would you? You too recoil in horror, ingrate, and I have come to save your life. Madam, I recoil not from you, but from that which is tempting you to utter words like these. I have no reason to love him of whom you speak. You, perhaps, have even less, but I would not have his blood shed in murder on my head for ten thousand worlds. Pardon me, but you do not mean what you say. Do I not? That remains to be seen. I would not call it murder plunging a knife into the heart of a demon incarnate like that, and I would have done it long ago, and he knows it too if I had the chance. What has he done to you to make you do bitter against him? Bitter? Oh, that word is poor and pitiful to express what I feel when his name is mentioned. Loathing and hatred come a little nearer the mark, but even they are weak to express the utter, the... She stopped in a sort of white passion that choked her very words. They told me he was your husband, insinuated Sir Norman, unutterably repelled. Did they? she said with a cold sneer. He is, too at least as far as church and state can make him. But I am no more his wife at heart than I am Satan's. Truly, of the two, I should prefer the latter, for then I should be wedded to something grand, a fallen angel. As it is, I have the honor to be wife to a devil who never was an angel. At this shocking statement, 
Sir Norman looked helplessly round as if for relief, and Miranda, after a moment's silence, broke into another mirthless laugh. Of all the pictures of ugliness you ever saw or heard of, Sir Norman Kingsley, do tell me if there ever was one of them half so repulsive or disgusting as that thing? Really, said Sir Norman in a subdued tone, he is not the most prepossessing little man in the world, but, madame, you do look and speak in a manner quite dreadful. Do let me prevail on you to calm yourself and tell me your story as you promised. Calm myself, repeated the gentle lady in a tone half snappish, half harsh. Do you think I am made of iron to tell you my story and be calm? I hate him. I hate him. I would kill him if I could. And if you, Sir Norman, are half the man I take you to be, you will rid the world of the horrible monster before morning dawns. My dear lady, you seem to forget that the case is reversed and that he is going to rid the world of me, said Sir Norman with a sigh. No, not if you do as I tell you, and when I have told you how much cause I have to abhor him, you will agree with me that killing him will be no murder. Oh, if there is one above who rules this world and will judge us all, why, why does he permit such monsters to live? Because he is more merciful than his creatures, replied Sir Norman with calm reverence, though his avenging hand is heavy on this doomed city. But, madam, time is on the wing, and the headsman will be here before your story is told. Ah, that story! How am I to tell it, I wonder? Two words will comprise it all. Sin and misery. Misery and sin. For buried alive here as I am, buried alive as I've always been, I know what both words mean. They have been branded on heart and brain in letters of fire. And that horrible monstrosity is the cause of all. That loathsome, misshapen, hideous abortion has banned and cursed my whole life. He is my first recollection. As far back as I can look through the dim eye of childhood's years, that horrible face, that gnarled and twisted trunk, those devilish eyes glare at me like the eyes and face of a wild beast. As memory grows stronger and more vivid, I can see that same face still. The dwarf! The dwarf! The dwarf! Satan's true representative on earth, darkening and blighting ever-passing year. I do not know where we lived, but I imagine it to have been one of the vilest and lowest dens in London, though the rooms I occupied were, for that matter, decent and orderly enough. Those rooms the daylight never entered. The windows were boarded up within and fastened by shutters without, so that of the world beyond I was as ignorant as a child of two hours old. I saw but two human faces, his she seemed to hate him too much even to pronounce his name, and his housekeepers, a creature almost as vile as himself and who is now a servant here. And with this precious pair to guard me, I grew up to be fifteen years old. My outer life consisted of eating, sleeping, reading, for the wretch taught me to read, playing with my dogs and birds, 
and listening to old Marjorie's stories. But there was an inward life, fierce and strong, as it was rank and morbid, lived and brooded over alone, when Marjorie and her master fancied me sleeping in idiotic content. How were they to know that the creature they had reared and made ever had a thought of her own, ever wondered who she was, where she came from, what she was destined to be, and what lay in the great world beyond? The crooked little monster made a great mistake in teaching me to read. He should have known that books sow seed that grow up and flourish tall and green till they become giants in strength. I knew enough to be certain there was a bright and glad world without, from which they shut me in and debarred me, and I knew enough to hate them both for it, with a strong and heartfelt hatred only second to what I feel now. She stopped for a moment and fixed her dark, gloomy eyes on the swarming floor, and shook off, without a shudder, the hideous things that crawled over her rich dress. She had scarcely looked at Sir Norman since she began to speak, but he had done enough looking for them both, never once taking his eyes from the handsome, darkening face. He thought how strangely like her story was to Leoline's, both shut in and isolated from the outer world. Verily, destiny seemed to have woven the woof and warp of their fates wonderfully together, for their lives were as much the same as their faces. Miranda, having shook off her crawling acquaintances, watched them glancing along the foul floor in the darkness, and went moodily on. It was three years ago when I was fifteen years old, as I told you, that a change took place in my life. Up to that time, that miserable dwarf was what people would call my guardian, and did not trouble me much with his heavenly company. He was a great deal from our house, sometimes absent for weeks together, and I remember I used to envy the freedom with which he came and went, far more than I ever wondered where he spent his precious time. I did not know then that he belonged to the honorable profession of highwaymen, with variations of coining, when travelers were few and money scarce. He was then, and is still, at the head of a formidable gang, over whom he wields most desperate authority, as perhaps you have noticed during the brief and pleasant period of your acquaintance. Really, madam, it struck me that your authority over them was much more despotic than his, said Sir Norman, in all sincerity, feeling called upon to give the, well, I'd rather not repeat the word, which is generally spelled with a D and a dash, his due. No thanks to him for that. He would make me a slave now, as he did then, if he dared. But he has found that poor, trodden worm as I was, I had life enough left to turn and sting. Which you do with a vengeance. Oh, I, you're a tartar, remarked Sir Norman to himself. The saints forfend that Leoline should be like you in temper as she is in history and face, for if she is, my life promises to be a pleasant one. This rascally crew of cutthroats whom his villainous highness headed, said Miranda, were an almost immense number then being divided in three bodies, London cutpurses, Hounslow Heath highwaymen, and assistant coiners, but all owning him for their lord and master. 
He told me all this himself one day when, in an after-dinner and most gracious mood, he made a boasting display of his wealth and greatness, told me I was growing up very pretty indeed, and that I was shortly to be raised to the honor and dignity and bliss of being his wife. I fancy I must have had a very vague idea of what that one small word meant, and was besides in an unusually contented and peaceful state of mind, or I should undoubtedly have raised one of his cut-glass decanters and smashed in his head with it. I know how I should receive such an assertion from him now, but I think I took it then with a resignation. He must have found mighty edifying, and when he went on to tell me that all this richness and greatness were to be shared by me when that celestial time came, I think I rather like the idea than otherwise. The horrible creature seemed to have woke up that day for the first time, and all of a sudden to a conviction that I was in a fair way to become a woman, and rather a handsome one, and that he had better make sure of me before any accident interfered to take me from him. Full of this laudable notion, he became a daily visitor of mine from thenceforth, and made the discovery simultaneously with myself that the oftener he came, the less favor he found in my sight. I had before tacitly disliked him, and shrank with a natural repulsion from his dreadful ugliness, but now from negative dislike I grew to positive hate. The utter loathing and abhorrence I've had for him ever since began then. I grew dimly and intuitively conscious of what he would make me, and shrank from my fate with a vague horror not to be told in words. I became strong in my fearful dread of it. I told him I detested, abhorred, loathed, hated him, that he might keep his riches, greatness, and ungainly self for those who wanted him. They were temptations too weak to move me. Of course, there was raving and storming, threatening terrible looks and denunciations, and I quailed and shrank like a coward, but was obstinate still. Then, as a dernier resort, he tried another bribe, the glorious one of liberty, the one he knew would conquer me, and it did. He promised me freedom. If I married him, I might go out into the great unknown world, fetterless and free, and I, oh fool that I was, consented. Not that my object was to stay with him one instant longer than my prison doors were opened. No, I was not quite so besotted as that. Once out, and the little demon might look for me with last year's partridges. Of course, those demoniac eyes read my heart like an open book, and when I pronounced the fatal yes, he laughed in that delightful way of his own, which will probably be the last thing you will hear when you lay your head under the axe. I don't know who the clergyman who married us was, but he was a clergyman. There can be no doubt about that. It was three days after, and for the first time in my fifteen years of life I stood in sunshine and daylight and open air. We drove to the cathedral, for it was in St. Paul's the sacrilege was committed, I never could have walked there. I was so stunned and giddy and bewildered. I never thought of the marriage. I could think of nothing but the bright, crashing, sunshiny world without, till I was led up before the clergyman, 
with much the air, I suppose, of one walking in her sleep. He was a very young man, I remember, and looked from the dwarf to me and from me to the dwarf in a great state of fear and uncertainty, but evidently not daring to refuse. Marjorie and one of his gang were our only attendants, and there, in God's temple, the deed was done, and I was made the miserable thing I am today. The suppressed passion, rising and throbbing like a white flame in her face and eyes, made her stop for a moment, breathing hard. Looking up, she met Sir Norman's gaze, and as if there was something in its quiet, pitying tenderness that mesmerized her into calm, she steadily and rapidly went on. I awoke to a new life after that, but not to one of freedom and happiness. I was as closely, even more closely guarded than ever, and I found, when too late, that I had bartered myself, soul and body, for an empty promise. The only difference was that I saw more new faces, for the dwarf began to bring his confederates and subordinates to the house, and would have me dressed up and displayed to them, with a demoniac pride that revolted me beyond anything else, if I were a painted puppet or an overgrown wax doll. Most of the precious crew of scoundrels had wives of their own, and these began to be brought with them of an evening. And then, what with dancing and music and cards and feasting, we had quite a carnival of it till morning. I liked this part of the business excessively well at first, and I was flattered and fooled to the top of my bent, and made from the first the reigning belle and queen. There was more policy in that than admiration, I fancy, for the dwarf was all-powerful among them and dreaded accordingly, and I was the dwarf's pet and plaything, and all-powerful with him. The hideous creature had a most hideous passion for me then, and I could wind him round my finger as easily as Delilah and Samson, and by his command and their universal consent the mimicry of royalty was begun, and I was made mistress and sovereign head, even over the dwarf himself. It was a queer whim, but that crooked slug was always taking such odd notions into his head, which nobody there dared laugh at. The band were bound together by a terrible oath, women and all, but they had to take another oath then, that of allegiance to me. It quite turned my brain at first, and my eyes were so dazzled by the pitiful glistening of the pageant, the sham splendor of the sham court, and the half-mocking, half-serious homage paid me, that I could see nothing beyond the shining surface, and the blackness and corruption and horror within were altogether lost upon me. This feeling increased when, as months and months went by, they were added to the mock peers of the midnight court, real nobles from that of St. Charles. I did not know then that they were ruined gamesters, vicious profligates, and desperate broken-down roues, who would have gone to pandemonium itself nightly for the mad license and lawless excesses they could indulge in here to their heart's content. But I got tired of it all after a time. My eyes began slowly to open, and my heart, at least, what little of that article I ever had, turned sick with the horror within me at what I had done. The awful things I saw, 
the fearful deeds that were perpetrated would curdle your blood with horror were I to relate them. You have seen a specimen yourself in the cold-blooded murder of that wretch half an hour ago, and his is not the only life crying for vengeance on these men. The slightest violation of their oath was punished, and the doom of traitors and informers was instant death, whether male or female. The sham trials and executions always took place in presence of the whole court to strike a salutary terror into them, and never occurred but once a week when the whole band regularly met. My power continued undiminished, for they knew either the dwarf or I must be supreme, and though the queen was bad, the prince was worse. The said prince would willingly have pulled me down from my eminence and have mounted it himself, but that he was probably restrained by a feeling that lawmakers should not be lawbreakers and that, if he set the example, there would be no end to the insubordination and rebellion that would follow. "'Were you living here or in London, then?' inquired Sir Norman, taking an advantage of a pause employed by Miranda in shaking off the crawling beetles. "'Oh, in London. We did not come here until the outbreak of the plague. That frightened them, especially the female portion, and they held a scared meeting and resolved that we should take up our quarters somewhere else, this place being old and ruined and deserted and with all sorts of evil rumors hanging about it was hit upon, and secretly by night these mouldering old vaults were fitted up and the goods and chattels of the royal court removed, and here I too was brought by night under the dwarf's own eye, for he well knew I would have risked a thousand plagues to escape from him, and here I have been ever since, and here the weekly revels are still held, and may for years to come, unless something is done tonight to prevent it. The night before these weekly anniversaries they all gather, but during the rest of the time I am alone with Marjorie and the dwarf, and have learned more secrets about this place than they dream of. For the rest there is little need of explanation. The dwarf and his crew have industriously circulated the rumor that it is haunted, and some of those white figures who saw with me, and who, by the way, are the daughters of these robbers, have been shown on the broken battlements, as if to put the fact beyond doubt. Now, Sir Norman, that is all. You have heard my whole history as far as I know it, and nothing remains but to tell you what you must see yourself, that I am mad for revenge and must have it, and you must help me. Her eyes were shining with the fierce red fire he had seen in them before, and the white face wore a look so deadly and diabolical that with all its beauty it was absolutely repulsive. He took a step from her, for in each of those gleaming eyes sat a devil. You must help me, she persisted. You, you, Sir Norman, for many a day I have been waiting for a chance like this, and until now I have waited in vain, alone. I want physical strength to kill him, and I dare not trust anyone else. No one was ever cast among us before as you have been, and now, condemned to die, you must be desperate, and desperate men will do desperate things. Fate, destiny, providence, whatever you like, has thrown you in my way, 
and help me you must and shall. Madam, madam, what are you saying? How can I help you? There is but one way. This! She held up in the pale ray of the lamp something she drew from the folds of her dress that glistened blue and bright and steely in the gloom. A dagger! he exclaimed with a shudder and a recoil. Madam, are you talking of murder? I told you, she said through her closed teeth and with her eyes flaming like fire, that ridding the earth of that fiend incarnate would be a good deed and no murder. I would do it myself if I could take him off his guard, but he never is that with me, and then my arm is not strong enough to reach his black heart through all that mass of brawn and blood and muscle. No, Sir Norman, doom has allotted it to you. Obey, and I swear to you, you shall go free. Refuse, and in ten minutes your head will roll under the executioner's axe. Better that than the freedom you offer, madam. I cannot murder. Coward, she passionately cried. You fear to do it, and yet you have but a life to lose, and that is lost to you now. Sir Norman raised his head, and even in the darkness she saw the haughty flush that crimsoned his face. I fear no man living, but, madam, I fear one who is higher than man. But you will die if you refuse, and I repeat again and again, there is no risk. These guards will not let you out, but there are more ways of leaving a room than through the door, and I can lead you up behind the tapestry to where he is standing, and you can stab him through the back and escape with me. Quick, quick, there is no time to lose. I cannot do it, he said resolutely, drawing back and folding his arms. In short, I will not do it. There was such a terrible look in the beautiful eyes that he half expected to see her spring at him like a wild cat and bury the dagger in his own breast. But the rule of life works by contraries. Expect a blow, and you will get a kiss. Look for an embrace, and you will be startled by a kick. When the virago spoke, her voice was calm, compared with what it had been before, even mild. You refuse. Well, a willful man must have his way, and since you are so qualmish about a little bloodletting, we must try another plan. If I release you, for short as the time is, I can do it. Will you promise me to go direct to the king this very night and inform him of all you've seen and heard here? She looked at him with an eagerness that was almost fierce, and in spite of her steady voice, there was something throbbing and quivering, deadly and terrible, in her upturned face. The form she looked at was erect and immovable. The eyes were quietly resolved, the mouth half pityingly, half sadly smiling. Are you aware, dear lady, what the result of such a step would be? Death, she said coldly. Death, transportation, or lifelong imprisonment to them all, misery and disgrace to many a noble house, for some I saw there were once friends of mine, with families I honor and respect. Could I bring the dwarf and his attendant imps to Tyburn and treat them to a hempen cravat? I would do it without remorse, though the notion of being informer even then would not be very pleasant. 
but as it is, I cannot be the death of one without ruining all, and as I told you, some of those were once my friends. No, madam, I cannot do it. I have but once to die, and I prefer death here to purchasing life at such a price. There was a short silence during which they gazed into each other's eyes ominously, and one was about as colorless as the other. You refuse, she coldly said. I must. But if you can save my life, as you say, why not do it and fly with me? You will find me the truest and most grateful of friends while life remains. You are very kind, but I want no friendship, Sir Norman, nothing but revenge. As to escaping, I could have done that any time since we came here, for I have found out a secret means of exit from each of these vaults that they know nothing of. But I have stayed to see him dead at my feet, if not by my hand, at least by my command. And since you will not do it, I will make the attempt myself. Farewell, Sir Norman Kingsley. Before many minutes, you will be a corpse, and your blood will be upon yourself. She gave him a glance as coldly fierce as her dagger's glance, and turned to go, when he stepped hastily forward and interposed. Miranda, Miranda, you are crazed. Stop, and tell me what you intend to do. What you are feared to attempt, she haughtily replied. Sheath this dagger in his demon heart. Miranda, give me the dagger. You must not, you shall not commit such a crime. Shall not? she uttered scornfully. And who are you that dares to speak to me like this? Stand aside, coward, and let me pass. Pardon me, but I cannot while you hold that dagger. Give it to me and you shall go free. But while you hold it with this intention for your own sake, I will detain you till someone comes. She uttered a low, fierce cry and struck at him with it. But he caught her hand and with sudden force snatched it from her. In doing so, he was obliged to hold it with its point toward her, and struggling for it in a sort of frenzy, as he raised the hand that held it, she slipped forward and was driven halfway to the hilt in her side. There was a low, gasping cry, a sudden clasping of both hands over her heart, a sway, a reel, and she fell headlong, prostrate on the loathsome floor. Sir Norman stood paralyzed. She half raised herself on her elbow, drew the dagger from the wound, and a great jet of blood shot up and crimsoned her hands. She did not faint. There seemed to be a deathless energy within her that chained life strongly in its place. She only pressed both hands hard over the wound and looked mournfully and reproachfully up in his face. Those beautiful, sad, solemn eyes devoid of everything savage and fierce, were truly Leoline's eyes now. Through all of his first shock of horror, another thing dawned on his mind. He had looked on this scene before. It was the second view in La Masque's cauldron, and but one remained to be verified. The next instant, he was down on his knees in a paroxysm of grief and despair. What have I done? What have I done, was his cry. Listen, she said faintly, raising one finger. Do you hear that? 
distant steps were echoing along the passage. Yes, he heard them, and he knew what they were. They are coming to lead you to death, she said with some of her old fire. But I will baffle them yet. Take that lamp. Go to the wall yonder, and in that corner near the floor you will see a small iron ring. Pull it. It does not require much force, and you will find an opening leading through another vault. At the end there is a broken flight of stairs. Mount them, and you will find yourself in the same place from which you fell. Fly, fly, there is not a second to lose. How can I fly? How can I leave you dying here? I am not dying, she wildly cried, lifting both hands from the wound to push him away while the blood flowed over the floor. But we will both die if you stay. Go, go, go! The footsteps had paused at his door. The bolts were beginning to be withdrawn. He lifted the lamp, flew across his prison, found the ring, and took a pull at it with desperate strength. Part of what appeared to be the solid wall drew out, disclosing an aperture through which he could just squeeze sideways. Quick as thought, he was through, forgetting the lamp in his haste. The portion of the wall slid noiselessly back, just as the prison door was thrown open, and the dwarf's voice was heard, socially inviting him, like Mrs. Bond's ducks, to come and be killed. Some people talk of darkness so palpable that it may be felt, and if ever anyone was qualified to tell from experience what it felt like, Sir Norman was in that precise condition at that precise period. He groped his way through the blind blackness along what seemed an interminable distance, and stumbled at last over the broken stairs at the end. With some difficult, and at the serious risk of his jugular, he mounted them, and found himself, as Miranda had stated, in a place he knew very well. Once here, he allowed no grass to grow under his feet, and in five minutes after, to his great delight, he found himself where he had never hoped to be again, in the serene moonlight and the open air, fetterless and free. His horse was still where he had left him, and in a twinkling he was on his back and dashing away to the city to love to Leoline. End of chapter 14